0: Alright, take a Bible, we're going to begin by reading our passage. Uh, It is on the handout, if you want to follow along there you can do that, but uh, you can find the book of Jude, only one chapter. Tonight we're going to look at verse 5 to verse 16. So you follow along as I read the text. Scripture says this, And abandoned themselves for the sake of gain to Balaam's error, and perished in Korah's rebellion. These are hidden reefs at your love feasts, as they feast with you without fear. Shepherds feeding themselves, waterless clouds swept along by winds. Fruitless trees in late autumn, twice dead, uprooted. Wild waves of the sea casting up the foam of their own shame... Wandering stars for whom the gloom of utter darkness has been reserved forever. It was about these that Enoch, the seventh from Adam, prophesied, saying, Behold, the Lord comes with ten thousands of his holy ones to execute judgment on all and to convict all the ungodly of all their deeds of ungodliness that they have committed in such an ungodly way And of all the harsh things that ungodly sinners have spoken against him. These are grumblers, malcontents, following their own sinful desires. They are loud-mouthed boasters, showing favoritism to gain advantage. So That's our passage for the evening. 2019, you almost cannot buy a product that doesn't have a warning label on it somewhere right? Everything has a warning label, and that tells you something about our society that we're very litigious, and it also tells you about our society that we're very stupid, and we try to use things for purposes that they were never intended for. So here's an example. Anybody recognize this lady? Anybody recognize that face? I'll give you a little clue. You ready? Here's your clue. Ah, yeah. Stella Liebeck. In 1992, she was 79 years old, she bought a cup of coffee at an Albuquerque McDonald's in the drive-thru, she set the cup of coffee between her legs to doctor it up the way she wanted it to, the lid popped off, it spilled everywhere, it burned her, and uh, hot coffee will do that, and uh, a jury awarded her nearly $3 million in damages. And so you've heard that story. Everybody kind of knows that, that well-known story. Now if you get a cup of coffee somewhere, it has hot written all over it and warning and all that sort of stuff. So we have warning labels on everything. And I'll just give you a few examples. These are real-life warning labels on just a handful of products, okay? On a wheelbarrow, warning, product not intended for highway use, Somebody tried that. Wheelbarrow on the highway. Wouldn't you like to see that? That sounds like an Odessa thing, right? Like out in the oil field thing. Hitch it up. Uh, Baby stroller. Warning. Remove child before folding product. Warning on an electric drill, like a DeWalt or a Black & Decker or something. Warning. Product not intended for use as a dental drill. I'm going to the dentist tomorrow, so that's good to know. Warning on a dishwasher. I think you'll like this one. Warning, do not allow children to play in the dishwasher. Somebody did that. Uh, Warning on a box of rat poison. Warning, this product has been found to cause cancer in lab mice. Just think about it for a second. Rat poison. I know why it's on there. I understand. Warning on a scooter. Warning, this product moves. So we're warned a lot. And we're probably overly warned, right? We get probably more warnings than we really need. And sometimes the noise of all of those warnings just reduces warnings down to noise, just to white noise. And a great example of that would be the last time you were on an airplane, right? The lady or the guy got up in the aisle and had the little buckles and they went through the thing and maybe they said it or maybe they played it over the speakers or whatever, but you didn't pay attention to any of it. You were worried about your seat and your bag and having everything right and you didn't listen to any of that. And look, those are really serious warnings, I'm not telling you that I listen to them, but those are serious warnings. That's some information that if you need to know it, you'd better know it. But we hear so many warnings, we just tend to drown them out. And I bring up warnings to say this middle section of the book of Jude is a warning. Okay, Last week we looked at Jude 1, 2, 3, and 4. So there's introductory verses, and Jude says, this is who I am, and... Uh, This is who I'm writing to, the ones who are called and beloved and kept, and he prays for them. I want mercy and peace and love to be multiplied to you, and then he talks about the reason he's writing. This is all stuff we covered last week. Jude says, I wanted to write you a letter about our common salvation, and he doesn't tell us exactly what that letter was going to be like. We speculated a little bit last week. He says, I wanted to write a letter about our salvation. Instead... I found it necessary to write to you, appealing to you, to contend for the faith that was once for all delivered to the saints. Literally, instead of writing what I wanted to write, I'm writing to you to say you're going to have to fight for the faith. It's not going to be easy, right? The faith doesn't just automatically pass down from one generation to the next. And he explains why we're going to have to fight in verse 4. He says, certain people have crept in unnoticed. It crept in unnoticed. And he gave a little description of them in verse 4. But in verse 5, all the way down to verse 16, he's talking about those people who have and will creep into the church. And it's a big warning label in the middle of the book. Now, the the back of the book, which we're going to talk about next week, verse 17 through the end, has a little bit of a different tone. But this middle section is one big warning. And there's a lot of stuff in there. As I studied it this week and looked over it this afternoon, I read those verses and I thought, I'm not sure there's a place in the Bible where there's more warning crammed into one little section, and there's more things that Judas is throwing out there to try to get your attention. And look, the danger in this passage is no different than you sitting on an airplane and drowning out the lady is that as Jude goes on and on and keeps talking about this, you start to say, okay, yeah, 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 I got it, I got it. Bad people, they're coming. Okay, I got it. What do you want me to do? I got it, I got it. Jude knew what he was doing, and the Holy Spirit didn't over-inspire him on this warning, right? The warning is exactly what God wanted it to be, and every little piece of it we need to hear. And the warning sort of has a, a twofold purpose, On the one hand, the warning is intended for you and me, for believers. And Jude is saying, you need to know who these people are, and you need to know what God is going to do to these people in the end. You need to understand just how high the stakes are. And on the other hand, the warning is for those people who have crept in. Because remember, we talked about the danger in Jude's mind isn't out there, the danger isn't with Caesar or with Nero or with whoever the governor of Judea is at the time. The danger is in the church. These people have crept in, into the fellowship. And so they're hearing this warning too. And Judas saying to them, you're not going to get away with it. You absolutely are not going to get away with it. And he's giving us this warning. So we're going to talk about verse 5 to verse 16. And I'm going to give you one disclaimer up front. One disclaimer. In these verses, I think that there are about 83 rabbit trails we could chase and spend the whole night talking about all kinds of different things. There's some fascinating stuff in here. There's there's maybe not a chunk of the Bible, you know, pick four paragraphs anywhere in the Bible, that has more... Controversial statements like Jude's just throwing these bombs out, and every one of them you could just stop and spend a whole Wednesday night talking about. And we're not gonna do that. Like, if you like to chase rabbits, we're not chasing them tonight. We're gonna stay on the path and we're gonna move right through this. And that means we're not gonna dig as deep on some of these things as we could. So, later. If you want to chase rabbits, I'll chase them with you. And we can, you know, run down these little paths and talk about, well, what does this mean? Well, why did he say this? Well, what, how does this fit in? We're just going to listen to the warning and move through it uh, in somewhat of an orderly fashion. So let's jump in. Jude 5 to 16. The first thing he wants us to know is that false teachers will certainly be judged. He wants us to know that false teachers will certainly be judged. I pointed out to you last week in verse 2 that Jude likes uh, triplets or triads. Like he groups things into threes. That's just kind of his writing style. And he did that with mercy, peace, and love. And he does it a lot in our section. And so we're just going to point out a few of those. The first triad that Jude throws at us is the Exodus fallen angels, and Sodom and Gomorrah. Like, that's a hodgepodge right there, right? Let's just pull some Old Testament stuff and let's throw it all in one basket in this first triad. So here we go. Each one of these examples is intended to be a lesson for us that false teachers are going to be judged. That's why he's bringing these three up. False teachers are going to face judgment. And the logic is pretty simple. In each of these examples I'm giving you, God brought judgment where he needed to bring judgment. If he could do it in those situations, he can certainly do it in this situation. Right? That's the example that Jude set in before us, the Exodus, fallen angels, and Sodom and Gomorrah. So here we go. Let's start with the Exodus. The death of the Exodus generation reminds us that even those who receive the greatest spiritual blessing can find themselves under the judgment of God. Even those who experience some of the greatest things that God ever does can end up finding themselves under God's judgment. And so I think when Jude says that Jesus, or the Lord, who saved a people out of the land of Egypt, afterward destroyed those who did not believe, my opinion on this, and we can chase rabbits later, is that Jude is thinking about Numbers 13 and 14. We're not going to turn there. You can look all these up later. Numbers 13 and 14, the people have wandered around for a while. They've built a tabernacle. They're getting ready to go into the promised land. They send the spies in to scope it out, and the 12 spies come back, and two of them, Joshua and Caleb, say, let's go. We can take them. And the other 10 say, absolutely not. We don't want anything to do with those people. There is no way that we can beat them in a fight. They are huge They have massive cities. It is impossible for us to take the land. And they don't go in. And God's judgment on that generation is to say, fine, you don't want to go in. You won't go in. You'll all die in the wilderness. 20 years and up, conveniently, he had just taken a census of the people. We'll pull the old census records out, 20 and up. Your funeral is coming. And when the last one of you is buried, I'll bring in your children. You're so afraid that you're going to be killed by these people and your children are going to be orphans. We're just going to let you die and then I'll bring them into the land. And I think that's what Judah's talking about. And you just think about the, the magnitude of that. These are people who saw the plagues with their own eyes. All ten. Like they saw the frogs. They smelled the stench of some of those plagues. They felt the darkness, right? They, they, this darkness that came down on the land. They, they experienced these things. They saw God kill the firstborn. They saw God part the Red Sea. They saw the pillar of fire and the pillar of cloud. They were eating the manna. I mean, all of these things they'd experienced. Tremendous blessings. But they didn't believe. And they experienced judgment. And Judah's saying, look, False teachers, they're going to creep in. They're going to be here. They're going to hear the same sermons you hear. They're going to probably sing along in the same worship worship songs you sing or the same hymns you sing. You can be associated with the right people in the right place. You can be part of the uh, the kingdom community. doesn't mean a thing. God's going to sort it out, and those false teachers who creep in are going to experience judgment. Secondly, the sons of God. We could really chase rabbits here, and we're going to just... Move through this. You ready? The punishment of the sons of God reminds us that even those who have been trusted with the greatest responsibilities can find themselves under the judgment of God. When you look at what Jude says about the angels, verse 6, who did not stay within their own position of authority but left their proper dwelling, he's not just talking about like Satan and leading a group of angels in deflection at the beginning. Every scholar worth their salt says Jude is clearly, there is no question he's talking about Genesis chapter 6. In Genesis chapter 6, you can think it's weird. You can be embarrassed by it. It is what it is. You've got to deal with it some way. It talks about angelic creatures, the sons of God, deflecting from their position of responsibility and taking up with human women. And you can say, that's weird. I don't want to believe that. That's fine. You don't have to believe it. That's what the story is. And Jude's talking about it. And he says, these Beings, these sons of God, these angels, these creatures who had been given tremendous responsibility over the administration of God's creation, right? They're part of this divine council of God's sort of spiritual beings ruling over the world. They deflect, and God doesn't hold back from them. They experience judgment, and Jude describes it as they're being kept in eternal chains and gloomy darkness until the judgment of the great day. They didn't get away with it. The false teachers will not get away with it. Then we go to Sodom and Gomorrah. It reminds us, the destruction of Sodom and Gomorrah reminds us that God's judgment is terrible and final. That's Jude's emphasis where he says they are undergoing, as an example, they're undergoing a punishment of eternal fire. And the comparison in Jude's mind seems to be between the sons of God and Sodom and Gomorrah. He says, verse 7, just as... Referencing what he just talked about with the angels, just as they rebelled and they crossed a boundary that they were not supposed to cross and it involved some sort of immorality, the same thing happened in Sodom. Right? This city, notorious for homosexuality, these people crossed a boundary and God brought judgment and destruction on them. Jude talks about it uh, in verse 7 as they pursued unnatural. Desire, or some translations say uh, they engaged in strange flesh, they pursued strange flesh. And the idea is that God has set up in creation that men and women are married and they abandoned that structure and pursued their own agenda. And the judgment was horrific. And so that's the first triad, right? The Exodus, then we talk about the sons of God, the angels, and then we talk about Sodom and Gomorrah. Triad number two Cain. Balaam, and Korah. Cain, Balaam, and Korah. This is in verse 11. Jude says, Woe to them! They walked in the way of Cain and abandoned themselves for the sake of gain to Balaam's error and perished in Korah's rebellion. I've given you the verses. You can look these up. We'll just move through these pretty quickly. The false teachers that Jude's thinking about, they're like Cain. They're motivated by selfishness and they destroy other people. Right? Cain could not stand it, that his brother was accepted and he was not. You can dig into the text and you can try to figure out motive and why he was or wasn't accepted, but it just ate him up, literally. And God warned him, he said, sin is crouching at your door. It wants to eat you up, wants to devour you. You have to master it, Cain. Cain didn't do that. That selfishness overtook him, anger overtook him, envy overtook him. And he brought destruction to someone else. Jude says false teachers are like that. What really motivates them is self. And they bring destruction to others. Is a warning. Next we go to Balaam. The false teachers are like Balaam. They're greedy and they lure other people into sin. So Balaam, the first time we meet him, he is being paid a bounty by a pagan king to curse God's people. And the Lord warns him, says, You better not say anything that I don't tell you to say. You're not going to curse these people. These people are blessed. And Balaam, it seems as you read the story, he goes along with this plan, hoping some way, somewhere, he'll find a little bit of wiggle room. He'll call a curse on these people and he'll get paid. And Jude says, Yeah, the false teachers are kind of like that. They're in it for a payday, they're greedy. They're greedy people, and they lure other people into sin. When Balaam wasn't able to curse God's people, you pick back up the story a few chapters later, he's not coming at them with like a a frontal attack of curse, but he's luring them with sexual immorality. And the people end up worshiping idols. Not because Balaam just hit them with a frontal attack and overpowered them, but he seduced them. Into sin, and he seduced them into idolatry. And Judah's telling us that's kind of what these false teachers are like. Don't expect a a full frontal attack on the church. We talked about this last week. They're not going to walk in and say, Hey, the wolves are here. They're going to creep in unnoticed. They're greedy and they lure people into sin. False teachers are also like Korah they refuse to submit to authority, and their end is certain. So you can look at number 16 for the story of Korah. He didn't like the fact that Moses was seemingly calling the shots. Really, the Lord was calling the shots, but he couldn't stand Moses being the point man. So he raises up a rebellion. He's not going to submit to the authority that God has placed in his life. And God deals with that rebellion by opening up the earth and swallowing Korah and his friends. And Jude says the false teachers are going to be a lot like that. They're not going to have anything to do with authority. They want to take authority and turn it on its head. It's going to cause problems in families. It's going to cause problems in your church. It's going to cause problems in Sunday school classes. You better watch out for these people. They're like Cain, they're like Balaam, and they're like Korah. So you got these two triads, right? The Exodus, the sons of God, Sodom and Gomorrah, Cain, Balaam, and Korah. And what Jude seems to be saying is in each of these situations... God handled it. They all came to a tragic end. God was up to the task, and he's up to the task now. Yes, these false teachers are going to creep in. It's certainly going to happen, but God is going to handle it. This is not going to be like the OJ trial where maybe a glove isn't going to fit at the end. Or maybe there's going to be a dramatic courtroom moment where some big bombshell revelation comes out that changes the trajectory of the case. Or you know, maybe the judge is going to be incompetent. Or maybe somebody's going to fail to do their job. There's going to be a technicality with the police reports and the evidence is going to get tossed out. None of that stuff is going to happen. God handled each one of these situations. He brought destruction and judgment to these people. And he's up for the task with the false teachers. So he wants us to know their judgment, their destruction is, is sure and certain. Secondly, he wants us to know how to identify them. This is kind of important, right? Because they're going to creep in unnoticed. So you've got to know how to identify them. And I'll just, before I start ticking through this list, let me just give you a warning. Okay, Jude's about to give us a warning. Let me give you a warning. A lot of guys at seminary read the book of Jude and verses like this, and they kind of go on witch hunts. Like they're always looking for someone to catch. Like they always, they suspect everyone. Like a good spy movie, right? Don't trust anyone. And so they walk into a church and they're looking at anyone, and anytime somebody says something a little bit wrong, they say, Ah, you're a wolf caught you. Get out of here. Darn wolf. We don't want any wolves in here. We don't want any false teachers. They're always looking and they're always creeping. If anybody just says something the wrong way or doesn't say something the right way, they're just ready to pounce on them. And I don't think that's what Jude wants us to do. We'll talk about that next week. What does Jude actually want us to do? I'm just telling you, somewhere there's a little bit of balance where we take Jude's warning seriously, right? There are going to be people who creep in unnoticed and he wants us to know How to spot them. But there's also something to 1 Corinthians 13, which is not about marriage love, it's about church love, where it's patient and it's kind and it doesn't envy and it doesn't boast and it believes all things and it hopes all things. And there's kind of something I think we just need to keep in the back of our mind as we read Jude where we say, let's be the kind of people that give others the benefit of the doubt. In our Sunday school classes, in our church family, you know, when we work with people on the mission field, as we interact with people on social media, let's let's be quick to listen and not so quick to speak. If we're confused or concerned, let's ask questions and clarify things rather than just pounce on people and demonize people as wolves. At the same time, let's not be naive to think that there aren't wolves in sheep's clothing. And somewhere in there, there's a little bit of balance and Maybe you can sort that out in your own life. He wants us to know how to identify the false teachers. Here's how we spot them False teachers often deny the authority and the sufficiency of Scripture. Verse 8 Jude says, These people rely on their dreams. They don't rely on Scripture, they rely on their dreams. So rather than saying, thus says the Lord in the prophet Malachi, or thus says the Lord through John the Evangelist, or thus says the Lord in this book of the Bible, they say, you know, I feel like God is telling me, well, I had this dream last night, and in this dream, can I tell you, people have weird dreams. If you don't think people have weird dreams, talk to Crystal when church gets out, and ask Crystal to tell you about some of her dreams. About once a week, Crystal comes into the office and says, I had a dream about you guess what happened? And they are amazing. But I don't try to like shape my life or my theology on Crystal's dreams. Like I listen to it and I say, well, that's really cool. I'm glad you were thinking about me even in your sleep. And then we're done. That's it. It's a, just a dream. And Jude says, these people rely on their dreams. Like, well, I had this vision. I had this, the Lord told me this. And Jude says, this is one of the ways you can spot false teachers. They deny the authority of Scripture. They deny the sufficiency of Scripture. Somebody denying the authority of Scripture looks like this. I understand that the Bible says ABC. I'm not having any of it. It's not the authority in my life. It's clearly saying this, and I'm going to believe this anyways. That's a denial of the authority of God's Word. I will not place myself under it. As my authority, I will stand over it in authority. Denying the sufficiency of Scripture is trickier. It's way trickier. It doesn't look like that full frontal attack saying, I don't want anything to do with it. Denying the sufficiency of Scripture says, Oh, I believe the Bible, but I'm going to add my dream to it. Well, I believe the Bible, but I'm going to take the best of human reason and add it to it. Well, I believe the Bible, but I'm going to take this prophetic word, from another human and add it to it. I believe the Bible, but it's not enough all on its own. And what I'm going to add to it is, is what culture says. I'm going to take that and lay that on top, and we're going to have both of those together. And Jude says, that's a telltale sign. These people rely on their dreams. They're not going back to Scripture. They have other sources of authority. Secondly, they refuse to submit to God-ordained authority. We already talked about this. When we talked about Korah, families must have an authority structure to proper correctly. You cannot function as a family unit without authority. You can malfunction with bad authority or abused authority, but you can't function properly without some sort of authority. And God set that up. He set it up to work that way. Uh, Nations are the same way. You can point to many, many examples where you say there's too much power, there's abuse, that's not right, they're not taking care of their people, they're not treating their people right. But you've got to have some authority structure for society to exist. Jude is saying the church is no different. There's got to be an authority structure. And these false teachers come in and they deny or they reject, verse 8, authority. They try to turn everything up on its head. Thirdly, they often have no respect for spiritual forces of evil, and I realize that's not a typo. I realize that might sound strange to you. They have no respect for spiritual forces of evil. This is a big, big rabbit trail, and we are not going to go down it. But we can talk about it later if you want to. In verse eight and nine and ten, he's talking about uh, some strange things. Okay. He quotes loosely, maybe I should say paraphrases, a story that is not in the Bible. Kind of weird, right? Jude actually, when he talks about this stuff about the archangel and the devil and the body of Moses, that's not in, you're not going to read that in Deuteronomy, right? doesn't pick up in Joshua with that story. You're not going to find it. It's in an old, ancient book called Assumption of Moses. We don't even have the whole document. We just have fragments of this document. We have people, other ancient documents, people talking about this book and this dispute. And people look at Jude and say, man, that's kind of weird. You're quoting some kind of not Bible book? Why are you quoting a not Bible book? And I would just say, this is my answer. I, I give you illustrations and examples all the time that I don't mean to have authority over the Bible. I think that's what Jude is doing. I mean, Sunday I pointed out something about the Avengers. I'm not saying let's dump our Bible and watch Avengers every Sunday morning. I'm just saying, like, here's, here's a, something that can help you understand this. And I think that's what Jude is doing here. He's, he's pulling a, maybe a sermon illustration or example and he's talking about Michael refusing to be blasphemous as he rebukes Satan. Rather than rebuke Satan on Michael's authority, he rebukes Satan on the Lord's authority. He has some sort of respect for like who he's dealing with. And I know using the word respect and devil in the same sentence, that's kind of weird, right? But there's an understanding on Michael's part, I don't have any power over this guy. The Lord has power over this guy. I'm not going to presume to to speak out of turn here. And if you want a parallel, I think you look at Acts 19. You remember Acts 19? There's a guy named Sceva, and he has sons, and they're trying to cast out demons, and they try to cast out demons in the name of Jesus, and they go through all the incantations and the magic and the formula, and the demons look back and say, I don't know who you are, Bubba. And they beat those boys up, and strip them of their clothes and run them out. And I think that's sort of the attitude that Jude is talking about. He's not saying all false teachers make this mistake, but he's saying watch for this. Right? These people who want to play games with demons, you need to run away from those people. Those people don't know what they're doing, they don't understand. They're blaspheming what they don't understand is the way Jude describes it. Essentially what Judas saying to people on this issue is you need to stay in your lane a little bit. You don't have any you don't have any power over these spiritual forces of evil. Jesus has power over all of them. You don't have any and you just need to be careful how you deal with this issue and so they have no respect for spiritual forces of evil. Next, they're ungodly. I don't know how you could miss this. They are ungodly. This is the second time in Jude where he quotes from a non-Bible book, mentioned Assumption of Moses, this time he quotes from 1 Enoch. And so Enoch is a name you probably recognize if you've read the book of Genesis. We read about Enoch in Genesis, he's mentioned in the New Testament book of Hebrews, but nowhere in the Bible do we have any of his words recorded. In an Outside the Bible book called First Enoch, there's some things that he allegedly, supposedly said, and Jude quotes some of those things. And the quote is in verse 15, 14 and 15. Behold, the Lord comes with ten thousands of his holy ones to execute judgment on all and to convict all the ungodly of their deeds of ungodliness, that they have committed in such an ungodly way, and of all the harsh things that ungodly sinners have spoken against him. Clearly, the theme of his message was: ungodliness is a problem. Like he's, he just, it's so redundant and repetitive, you can't help but have it drilled into your brain. These people are ungodly. We tend to take two words and conflate them a little bit. We tend to think ungodly means unrighteous, those mean the same thing. I think they're a little bit different. I think there's a distinction there. In the book of Romans, Paul mentions unrighteousness and ungodliness side by side. And I don't think he mentions them as synonyms. I think he's making a distinction. Unrighteousness is your sin, your wickedness, your rebellion. Ungodliness is living your life as if God didn't exist. And you can do that going to church on Sunday morning and then living the rest of the week as if he wasn't real. You can sing along on Wednesday night. I mean, you can be on the Wednesday night A team. Here you are. We're singing hymns, not weak worship songs. We're singing hymns, man. Not just on the screen. We have hymn books. We are godly people. But you can walk out of this room and you can spend the rest of the week living and thinking and planning and dreaming as if there were no God. You check a box on Wednesday night and live the rest of the week in an ungodly way. I'm not saying you're going to go out and commit all kinds of heinous, visible sins. I just mean you're going to go through life as if God really wasn't real. People do that all the time. And I think Jude's warning us about that as he talks about Enoch. One last way you spot them, they have an inability to control their tongue. Ouch. Ouch. Verse 16, he says, they are grumblers and malcontents, never satisfied, always voicing their displeasure. And then he says, they are loud-mouthed boasters. Clearly, they have a problem controlling their tongue. And you look this up later. We're not going to look at it now. James 3. You look it up. James says like the flip opposite of this. Jude says... False teachers don't control their tongue. James says, you better be very careful when you sign up to be a teacher. Better be careful. Not everyone should sign up to teach. James warns us about that. And you know what the very next thing James talks about is? Your tongue. You better control it. It is a deadly evil. Setting things on fire, turning the course of a great ship. If you're going to teach, you better control your tongue. And Jude is giving us the flip, and he's saying these people teaching bad things, many of them have an inability to control their tongue. One last thought from Jude. He wants us to understand the danger. We'll move through this quickly. He wants us to understand the danger. This is kind of like the last big warning sign. I know you're warned out, but one more warning sign. I'll give you a quote from William Barclay. I like William Barclay. He does not... Uh, he's dead now. Um, we, Me and William don't agree on a lot of things, but his commentaries are really interesting, and he brings out some things that a lot of other guys don't bring out. And he said this uh, about our text. He said, this is one of the great passages, excuse me my typo up there, one of the great passages of invective, and the word invective means insulting language, this is one of the great passages of insulting language of the New Testament. It is a blaze of moral indignation at its hottest. So you've learned a new word, invective. You can go to some restaurant this week and say, you're about to get some invective if you don't bring my food out quickly. I don't know. You figure out how to use it. Um, Jude, it's just like the snowball is rolling downhill at this point. He's warned us, he's warned us, he's warned us, and he's just got a few more things to say about these false teachers. And specifically, we're looking right now like at verse 12 to 13. And he just, he piles them up. You remember I told you he likes threes, groups of threes? Well, here he gives us a six, so it's like doubling. Like I'm going to give you three examples, but here I'm going to give you six because I really want to make my point about what these people are like. He wants us to understand the danger. Okay, He does not want us to walk away and say, eh, I got bigger fish to fry. Eh, I got a lot of other things to worry about. He wants us to walk away saying, this is serious business. And so, here we go. Jude says false teachers are destructive. Destructive. Some translations in verse 12 say, Uh, these are blemishes, but I think the best word is hidden reefs. Uh, We can talk about the Greek word if you want to chase that rabbit later, but I think what he means is these people are like hidden reefs. Ask anybody who owns a boat, a hidden reef is a bad deal. And Jude says, you know, it's like you're, you're sailing along, everything's great, and then bang, you got a problem. And he says, they're blowing up your love feasts, which is kind of weird. You may have noticed we don't have love feasts on the calendar here at Emmanuel. The love feast was like a weekly, outside the worship service, everyone get together, potluck. Yes, Christians always like to eat together. Potluck, where they also had the Lord's Supper, like all rolled into one. Fellowship, potluck, Lord's Supper, and they did it for a long time. Uh, you You get hints of it in the book of Acts. And then early church fathers write about it. They have these love feasts. And we know that sometimes they really got out of hand. For example, I've given you a reference in Corinth. In Corinth, it turned into a keg party. People were literally getting drunk at the love feast. And Paul says, That's a problem. We probably need to dial that back a little bit. And Jude says, Look, that's what they're like. You're sailing along. You think you're going to the church potluck. You think you're going to this, you know, this love feast. And you show up and it's a cake party. You got a problem. These people are destructive. They're taking something good and they're just blowing it up. Secondly, they starve the sheep. False teachers starve the sheep. They might tickle their ears, they might entertain them, they might put on a good performance for them, but they don't feed them. Ezekiel talks about this. Ezekiel says, We're about to be, uh, excuse me, we've already been sent into exile. Because the shepherds weren't feeding the sheep. There was nobody teaching the truth in Israel. So we got sent out of the land. And Jude says the same thing. He talks about shepherds feeding themselves. That is not the job of a shepherd. The job of a shepherd is to feed the sheep. Jesus said that to Peter, right? Do you love me, Peter? Feed my sheep. Peter, do you love me? You know I love you. Feed my lambs. Peter, do you love me? Jesus. Feed my sheep. Not yourself. Feed the sheep. And Jude says the, the false teachers, they feed themselves. They starve the sheep. It's not an entertainment gig, it's not an ear tickling gig. It's feeding. False teachers, number three, offer false hope. This is my favorite image in the whole invective. He says, they are waterless clouds swept along by winds. I like that because we know what that's like, right? You get the alert on your phone and you pull the radar up and you say, ah, rain is coming, it's going to be great, I don't have to run my sprinklers. Nothing. Absolutely nothing. False hope. Right? These people are going to creep in, they're going to offer you the moon and then some, and they can't deliver on any of it. False teachers are worthless. They have no value. Jude describes them as fruitless trees in late autumn when there should be fruit, and they're twice dead, uprooted. That's, there's one thing that a fruitless, dead, uprooted tree is good for, and it's a bonfire. And that's exactly what Jesus says when he talks about the vine and the branches, Right? If there are branches that are not bearing fruit, we are cutting them off and we are throwing them in the fire. Jude says these people are worthless. They don't bear fruit. They don't have any value. False teachers are filthy. And I think the idea here is like an impurity or an immorality. Isaiah 57 is almost just the exact same image, but look at verse 13. Jude says they are wild waves of the sea casting, this is the key, casting up the foam... Of their own shame. Isaiah talks about the mire and the mud of wild waves. And it's sort of the idea like if you've been to the beach and it's been real crazy, real bad weather. I've been to the beach right the day after a hurricane uh, on a. Brooke and I went to vacation in Mexico. There was a hurricane. And on the very last day, we got to go to the beach and it was nasty. I mean, it was gross, stuff everywhere, washed up on the beach, it's just a mess, and that's what Jude's talking about, these wild waves, and they just leave a mess behind them. He says, that's what the false teachers are like, they're filthy. And lastly, they lead people astray. Verse 13, they are wandering stars. A wandering star is not going to help you chart a true course. It's going to lead you where you don't want to go. So they're destructive, they starve the sheep, they offer false hope, they're worthless, they're filthy, they lead people astray. Look, this is a warning from Jude. It's just warning, warning, warning. And I thought, all week, how do you, how do you end this lesson? How do you wrap it up? Like I feel like we need some sort of resolution at the end of it, but that's really next week. And so right now, I think you just leave it with the tension of Jude giving us this big, long warning. And we just pray, God, give us ears to hear this warning. Let us not just drown this out as white noise. Let us not see this as unimportant. But let us hear the warning that Jude is offering us. And we know, in the back of our minds, we're not through the letter yet. There's more to come. right? So Jude has set up the whole issue. This is why I'm writing to you. This is what I wanted to write. This is why I'm writing. You're going to have to fight. And then he gives us this big warning in the middle, and then next week we wrap it up, and that's where you put the bow on it, and Jude says, okay, this is what you need to do, and this is what you need to know. There's something you need to do, and there's something that you need to know, and that's what we'll talk about next week.